0: We are in the last thing I'm going to say about the book of Exodus. And then we're done. Uh, and then we are going to start our new series called Teach Us to Pray. And we're going to walk through the Lord's Prayer line by line. So I'm really excited about that. Feels really practical as we engage with that text. But I want to end um, by picking up the second kind of big theme that comes at the end of Exodus, which is the building of the tabernacle. Uh, it is, it gets, Lots of pages written about it, and so we just want to explore the question, what does this tabernacle, this mobile home of God, have to do with us, and why would we read these things? Exodus 25, it begins like this. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, purple, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen. Goat hair, ram skins, dyed red, and another type of durable leather. Acacia? Acacia wood? Thank you. Olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense. The onyx stones and the other gems to be mounted in the ephod and piece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then we get four chapters talking about this sanctuary that is to be built, the furnishing for it, and the clothes that the priests are supposed to wear. The tabernacle is essentially God's mobile home. It's a way of saying to the people of Israel, wherever you go, I will go with you. I'm not stuck here on the mountain with you, but wherever you go, my presence will be there, the smoke and the fire. I will reside with you. I will live with you wherever you go. And this mobility of God is important. God desires to move with the people. And so when later on Solomon says, I'm going to build you a temple, God says, I'm actually good in a mobile home. I don't need this big solid place that isn't going to move. I like being able to move with you. There are some scholars that are actually of the opinion that the description of the tabernacle in verse 25 or chapter 25 is actually a description of Solomon's temple. That maybe perhaps the tabernacle never existed and that the writers later on are looking back and saying, this is a description of the temple that was there. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Either way, I think that the temple, tabernacle, the tent, we see the same story. They serve essentially the same purpose, and we will see that this purpose is fulfilled in Jesus. So both the tabernacle and the the temple bring up the images for us of God's creation story from Genesis. Let me show you a few ways. First, inside the Most Holy of Holies is an ark, which is just a wooden box that is covered with gold. And in between on this ark are two angels uh, that surround what is called the mercy seat. These two angels can remind us of the story of Genesis where Adam and Eve are evicted from the garden and God places two angels that are at the entrance of the garden barring the return to the garden. In this way, we might see the most holy place as Eden Revisited a place where people and God connect. Except this time, only the high priest can enter. It is the place where God's throne, or perhaps his footstool, as the Psalms say, is a place where God gives his commands to the people. Inside this tabernacle, there is a table and a lampstand. I think very likely that this fire that never goes out is an allusion to the creation light of Genesis 1, to the burning bush of Exodus 3 to the presence of fire, the pillar of fire in Exodus 13. It is the physical reminder that God is light, that God is seen in the fire. We still do something similar today. This lampstand might also symbolize the tree of life in the garden which Adam and Eve were barred, and so to enter into the tabernacle is to return to the Garden of Eden. Also, consider the incredible detail and precision and Ordering of every part of the tabernacle, the furnishings of the tabernacle, the clothes that the priests wear. This ordering of the tabernacle is just like the ordering of the cosmos in Genesis 1. The curtain that separates the most holy place from the holy place is blue, like the sky, with angels in it. And so to pass through the blue curtain is to enter into the heavens, the the place where God is. Outside of the tabernacle, there is a bronze basin. It stands in the courtyard entrance. It's where the priests could wash before the sacrifice. I was thinking as I read through uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, like, there was a lot of blood. Like, that place must have really smelt bad. Like, there's just blood everywhere. But they had a nice basin that they could wash. And this was called the Bronze Sea. The water could symbolize God's defeat over the chaos waters of Genesis 1. In Exodus 31, 1 to 11, we read about these two men, Bezalel and Oholiab, who are supervisors, and they are filled with God's spirit and ability. Now, the interesting thing is that the word ability there is wisdom, and it's translated as wisdom almost everywhere else in the scriptures. And so there is this presence of wisdom in the creation of this new tabernacle. It reminds us of Proverbs 8.22 where we read that wisdom was present at the beginning of the creation of of the cosmos. In Proverbs the lady wisdom says, I was formed in ancient times at the beginning before the earth was. And so just as wisdom was present at the creation of the world, so wisdom is present at the creation of this new tabernacle. And finally, If you read carefully, you will notice that exactly seven times the author will write, The Lord spoke, said to Moses. The first time we read this phrase is at the beginning of Exodus 25, verse 1. The next five references are close together near the the end of this section, and the seventh and final time comes right before Moses introduces the Sabbath command. And so six divine commands, given how to build the tabernacle, followed by a seventh on how to observe the Sabbath. For those familiar with the creation story, we might hear the echoes of Genesis 1, where there are six days of creation, followed by one day of rest. The whole building of this tabernacle is a mini-creation. To enter into the tabernacle is to be taken back to the garden, back to the beginning, Back to God's unfiltered presence, just like it was in the Garden of Eden. For the people of Israel, there is no more sacred place, no more sacred spot on earth than the tabernacle and later the temple. Because this is the place where you meet God. The place where God dwells. The place, the Israelites then, what was the purpose? What what did the tabernacle and later the temple do? Well, let me suggest to you three things: that the tabernacle and temple, the purpose of them. First, it was the place where you would go to find the presence of Yahweh. In 1 Kings 8:10, we read that when Solomon built the temple and dedicated it, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister, because the cloud, because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. If you wanted to find the presence of God, you would go to now, the Israelites believed that God was not bound to the temple, and they could still meet with God other places, but it was the place that was for sure that you could go and find God. Secondly, it was the place of sacrifice. The sacrifices weren't just for the forgiveness of sins. they was also the place where people would gather, and so it was a community place and a place for sacrifice of forgiveness of sins. Worship and community happened together around the sacrifices. he writes says that the temple, it was a place of sacrifice, not only the place where sins were forgiven, but also the place where the union and fellowship between Israel and her God was endlessly and tirelessly consummated. Finally, it was the political center of the life of Israel. Particularly, this is true of the temple. There was an expectation that God was the king And God resided in the temple. That was his palace, the place from which God ruled. So then what does that have to do with us today? Well, in one sense, nothing, because we don't have a temple, we do not have tabernacles and priests, and we don't sacrifice animals, and so we don't need any of this. And yet, much like we found last week that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, so too we find that Jesus comes into the story of Israel and all of the purpose and necessity of the temple and the tabernacle is found, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And so I love the Gospel of Mark. It's it's one of my favorites. It's short, it's fast-paced, it's action-packed, it's deceptively simple, and people like to skip the Gospel of Mark for the more theologically rich and robust Gospels of John and Matthew. Um, And they like to to think like, well, we're going to dig into these books. But but Mark, when you you get into it, is such a thick book. Clearly, Mark was a master writer who was teaching through his stories. And one of the things that Mark does in his gospel is tucked into the story are all the ways in which Jesus' life embodies the fulfillment and purpose of the temple. And so buckle up, we're going to do a whirlwind tour through Mark and see how Jesus embodied God's presence, Jesus is the place of sacrifice and who brings new community, and Jesus is the king today. So first, the embodiment of God's presence. When Jesus is baptized in Mark 1, 9 to 11, we are told that Jesus comes out of the water, the heavens are torn open, and the Spirit of God descends into Jesus. Right from the start, this Gospel of Mark shows that Jesus has this driving force of God's spirit in him. In the same way the spirit descended into the temple at King Solomon's um, dedication of the temple, so now the spirit of God descends into Jesus. Later in Mark 4, 35 to 41, we read the story of the disciples crossing the sea when this massive storm hits. Like... Good Jewish boys, the disciples see the sea as a destructive chaos that has not yet been calmed and tamed by Yahweh. The sea was the place of unknown terror, of demonic powers. It was known that only God could be the controller of the natural world. Only God could speak and create order out of chaos. And so, like the sailors in the book of Jonah, afraid for their lives, they wake Jesus up, expecting him to pray for them. But instead of appealing to God for rescue, Jesus gets up, rebukes the wind and the waves, and says simply, quiet, be still. And the waters stop. The presence of God is revealed in Jesus, for only God can turn the chaos into order. Only God can bring a mini-creation and a calmness In Mark 6, 45 to 52, the disciples are again on the water in a storm while Jesus stays behind to pray on the shore. And then in the night, Jesus walks on the water, intentionally planning to literally pass the disciples by. From the language Mark uses in the gospel, it seems clear that Jesus wanted to bring to mind for the disciples the story of God passing by Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. When the disciples respond with fear, Jesus says, Take heart i am he uses the same word as he does in exodus three fourteen when yahweh reveals himself to moses as i am what we see is over and over in the gospel of mark god is no longer dwelling in a human tent or temple but god is now out dwelling with the people allowing his glory and mystery to tabernacle in their midst but not as a building but as a person. Secondly, the place of sacrifice. The sacrifice and the priests, they had this role to mediate God's presence for the people. And while the temple was originally meant to be inclusive for all people, over time this was lost, and people found that they were being kept farther and farther away from the Holy of Holies. There became a scale of who was pure, who was holy, and the purer and holier you were, the closer you could get to God's holy presence. Women and Gentiles most often found themselves the farthest away from God. But in Jesus, we see that God breaks away from this regulated system that keeps people from God's presence. And in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is out ministering to women and to Gentiles, and he acts exactly as the temple was supposed to. Jesus is the place for all people. When the temple became an exclusivist system, God did not seek to reform it, but rather sent Jesus to fulfill the purpose of becoming the unmediated presence of God to everyone so that they could all come close. And so there were two common sacrifices made at the temple. First was the sacrifice for presence, and the other was the sacrifice for forgiveness to reintegrate into the community. We see Jesus as the place of the sacrifice of presence in Mark 10:28. When Peter says, "Look, Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you." The disciples sacrificed what they had so that they could be in the presence of God. Mark 14:3 and 9, there's a beautiful story of a woman who comes into a special meal and pours incredibly costly perfume on Jesus, anoints him. This points to his death, his anointing as king, and it also brings a great sacrifice. But she brings the sacrifice not to the temple, but to Jesus, the new temple. And Mark tells this story right after a story about a poor woman who gave what she had to the temple that was not going to last. And so he tells us the story of two women, one who brings her offering to a temple that is about to be destroyed and another to a temple that will last forever. As for the sacrifice for forgiveness of sins, in Mark 2, 4-12, Jesus heals a paralyzed man and forgives, announces that his sins are forgiven. In one short story, Jesus essentially destroys the entire system of sacrifice by removing the priests and allowing people to access God's forgiveness on their own. Jesus eats with people. He touches the unclean and makes them clean. He speaks words of blessing, and over and over, as Jesus encounters people and forgives them and makes them clean and blesses them, everything that you would go to the temple to do, Jesus now does outside of the system. The temple, though, was the place where people found their weary back into community so if you sinned or you broke something you would also break yourself out of the community of people but jesus redefines a new community not around the temple but around himself when jesus creates a new community in mark 3 jesus's family comes to take him away and says we got to take you back jesus and jesus says no who are my father who are my brothers and sisters who is my mother those who do the will of God. This is a new community, a community that finds its foundation and belongs to him. Finally, Jesus is the royal king, the embodiment of Israel's political hopes and dreams for the people. And so Jesus exercises his authority like a king in Mark 4. Jesus entered Jerusalem as a king in Mark 11. He is anointed as a king in Mark 14, and he is crucified as a king in Mark 15. So the purpose and, of the tabernacle, of the temple, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. But what does that mean for us? And I'd like to suggest four things for us, which is too many. We're only supposed to do three-point sermons, but there are four. First, Jesus as the temple reminds us that the presence of God is not something distant or far off. We do not need to travel to Israel to experience the presence of God. And like the disciples, even in the midst, midst of chaos and storms, we can be assured of the presence of Yahweh, which is near to us. The amazing thing about the temple now is that it is not made of wood or brick or fabric, that God is no longer confined to one spot. And while the Gospel of Mark makes it clear that God is not always, does not always immediately leap to our rescue, it strongly affirms that God is present in every situation. God is not bound to a spot or a temple, but actually we become the temple in which God's Spirit dwells. Secondly, we learn that the presence of God is no longer mediated by priests or rituals. Amazingly, God has opened the door granting everyone access to the Holy of Holies. What had become an exclusivist establishment with levels of holiness and purity has been abolished. This was never the intention of the temple, and so in the person of Jesus, the temple transcends all boundaries and invites people in, which I think should be a strong warning to all of us in the church today. The church... Christian, you and I, are not the mediators and connectors of God's presence with people. We are not the judge. We do not determine who is forgiven and who is not, who is in and who is out. The church is the gathering of people around the true temple, Jesus, and we must be careful that our attitudes towards those around us or or there is a very real possibility that we will find ourselves disqualified like the religious leaders of Jesus' time. The temple of God, Jesus, is meant to attract people. We cannot be the ones who set ourselves at the door sending people away or trying to regulate who is only on the outer edges of the temple courtyard because that is antichrist. Thirdly, Jesus is the one who forgives sins. The sacrificial system for the forgiveness of sins is over. We, all we need for the forgiveness of sins is Jesus. However, the disciples of Jesus will continue to find that they are called to sacrifice. Part of worshiping God's, in God's presence means giving up things. Sacrificing everything so that we can, t- can continue be in the presence of God. And fourthly, we do not sacrifice everything alone. Just as the temple was the central place for worship and community, so Jesus is our new temple, our new place of worship. Jesus makes us a new family and calls us to journey and to worship together. And so we gather around Jesus and worship God. Actually, I had five things, not four. Sorry. Sorry. Finally, we know that Jesus is the royal king. And this means that even now, Jesus is in the process of taming chaos, putting the world back the way it was supposed to be, because Jesus is Yahweh as king, the king. We know ultimately that he will succeed. We, his subjects now, are given the job of proclaiming and living into this kingdom message working with God to set the world right. We are under no illusion that somehow the church is the temple or the fulfillment of what is to come. Instead, we live in this already, not yet, working and waiting for the day when the peace of Yahweh reigns forever. And so we see this tabernacle, this temple, but we also find all of its fulfillment, all of its purpose in the life of Jesus. And everything that we would have gone to the temple for now, we now go to Jesus. And we worship him there. We find our forgiveness there. We celebrate him as king. And we expect to find the presence of God as we come to him. And that is worth sacrificing. May it be true in our lives.